to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Many people today regard themselves as mostly good, and therefore without any need of God's forgiveness or commandments. It's often stated like this, I might not be perfect, but I'm a fairly good person. Well, Jesus insisted that our fundamental obligation to the Creator is to love our neighbour and love our God. You can see this in Matthew 22, 34-40 and Mark 12, 28-35. I'm suggesting that you could offer a gospel bite to a person who says they're pretty good along the following lines. I appreciate what you're saying, but doesn't it depend on what definition of good you're using? Jesus was once asked by a religious scholar what was the single most important thing to do in life. He responded by saying there were actually two things, to love your neighbour as yourself and to love God with all your heart. Being kind and honest with people is only half of it. He insisted we also have to love our Creator. Would you say you're good on Jesus' definition? Because Jesus is so highly respected in contemporary culture, at least as a teacher, you may find that people are unwilling simply to write off his words on this topic. This may also provide an opportunity for you to explain that even followers of Christ don't fulfil this command perfectly, and so they too need his forgiveness. The logic of loving God and neighbour as the fundamental obligation of humanity could also be teased out in a conversation along these lines. According to Jesus, our fundamental obligation in life is to love both God and our neighbour. Most of us would rightly criticise people who claim to love God but ignored their fellow human beings. On Jesus' teaching, the reverse would be just as open to criticism. Treating people well while ignoring the Creator falls way short of what Jesus actually taught was our obligation. So I guess it depends on whose definition of good you're going to accept. Have you ever looked into the life of Jesus? Again, this gospel bite only takes about a minute, points people to something Jesus actually said or did, and answers a question. Let me give you another example. I think most of us would agree that pluralism the belief that all religions point to God, is one of the major challenges put to modern Christians. It appears in so many forms. You Christians are so arrogant as to think you alone have the truth. Or, my own view is more open. I like to think of all religions as containing their own truth. Or this one, what makes your religion so special when there are so many Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists in the world? Now, there's no way a simple gospel bite is going to answer all of the issues relating to pluralism. Nevertheless, one important aspect of our response might involve blaming Jesus for the views we hold as Christians. It was, after all, Jesus who made such grandiose claims. Christians can't help it if they just find themselves convinced by what Jesus said. Any passage in which Jesus claims universal authority is pertinent to this topic. I'm thinking of Matthew 28, 16 to 20, Mark 14, 60 to 65, or Luke 24, 25 to 47, or John 14, 5 to 6. In the following example of a gospel bite, I quote the famous passage from John's gospel. Here we go. 
I understand what you're saying, but it's important to realise that Christians don't think they possess the truth. Not at all. They simply look at Jesus' life and find themselves convinced by his teaching and deeds. I mean, Jesus was the one who said he had universal authority over the world. He was once asked by a friend about the way to God, and he replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christians didn't make that up. You can't really blame a Christian for taking seriously the words of Christ, can you? What do you make of Jesus' words? Or a more philosophical approach to the same issue of pluralism might refer to John chapter 14, verses 8 to 10, where Jesus claims to be one with God the Father. Here's the example. You ask what makes Christianity so special. Well, I reckon it boils down to a unique claim that Jesus himself made. One of his followers once asked him to show them what God was like. You know what Jesus said in reply? He said, if you have seen me, you have seen God the Father. Jesus alone of all the great religious founders said that he himself was the revelation of God in person. People don't have to rely on religion or guesswork. They can just look at his life and see what God is like. Jesus is the photo of God, if you like. For me, that's what separates Jesus from the other religious claims. Have you ever thought much about Jesus? Now, this sort of gospel bite reply isn't going to satisfy all the questions relating to pluralism. For instance, people may respond to the above gospel bite with, Yeah, but how do you know all that stuff about Jesus is true in the first place? Well, this will give you an opportunity to talk about the historical reliability of Jesus and the Gospels. Christianity, uniquely among the world religions, is an historical faith. When people ask questions about history, they're actually on our turf. In any case, an answer similar to the ones I've just given may provide a starting point for a helpful discussion about the truly unique claims of Jesus. I want to give you another example of the gospel bite. The question of suffering looms large in the modern mind, particularly in light of disasters such as the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami. Many of the issues need to be dealt with philosophically. I mean, does suffering disprove God's existence? Or they have to be dealt with theologically. Is God powerless to do anything? In no way am I suggesting that all or even most of the questions people might ask about suffering um, can be answered in a gospel bite. Nevertheless, there is an aspect of this particular problem that leads naturally to a discussion about Christ's life, and in particular, about his death. Regardless of what we don't know about God's plans in his world, we do know his intentions. Jesus' sufferings provide a powerful counterpoint to the assumption that God might be distant, cruel, or uninvolved. Hence, one aspect of my answer to the problem of pain and suffering comes back to the picture of God we have in Jesus' passion, as recorded in Mark 15, 21-37. Let me give an example of a gospel bite about the question of suffering based on that passage. I don't have all the answers about suffering, but one thing I do hold to, especially when I'm going through hard times, is that the God of Christianity is not distant, 
or disinterested. In Jesus, God himself experienced human betrayal, horrible injustice, and a gruesome death. The scene of his crucifixion, as described in the Gospels, is very moving. He bears incredible insult and injury and continues to act compassionately. This, according to the Bible, is the God who rules all things. He willingly experiences what we experience. This God is able to sympathize with those who suffer, not simply because he is all-knowing, but because he has experienced pain firsthand. This helps me trust God when I don't understand what he's doing in the world. Have you ever looked at Jesus' life and death? Now, as I said, in no way do I think this response answers all the questions of suffering. It doesn't even come close. But it does provide a snapshot into one important aspect of the biblical notion of God as humble, loving and familiar with suffering. I'm not recommending you attempt a gospel bite each time you get into a spiritual conversation. The point of these last two reflections is simply to demonstrate that Jesus' life, teachings, miracles, death and resurrection are a rich source of answers to some of the common questions we're going to be asked in life. Recounting a relevant part of that narrative may provide your friends with some satisfying answers. It may also open up an opportunity to outline the gospel more fully. So let me encourage you to read the gospels, asking yourself the question, how might each of these stories give a valuable answer to the questions people ask me? God bless you. Hope 1032. Thanks for listening.